The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to Luke. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. This is the gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, immediately before the passage that I just read for our gospel reading today, Jesus is talking about forgiveness to the disciples, but he's doing so in a way that makes these disciples feel really inadequate, like they aren't up to the task of forgiving. He tells them that if another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. So the disciples, they think to themselves, gosh, we're not quite ready for that yet. We need to improve a bit. We need some extra power. We need some spiritual juice. And so they call out to Jesus, increase our faith. We're at about a level five right now. We need to be closer to a level nine if we're going to come anywhere close to living in this way that you're describing and forgiving to that extent. If we're going to live like the Christians we think we're supposed to be, we need to step up our game. And so they do an interesting thing in asking Jesus to increase their faith. I think that it's interesting because when we think about faith, we often think about how it comes or it looks like looking towards someone or something else other than ourselves upon which we can place our trust. But we also think about the ways in which we wish we were more faithful when we talk about faith. Or we think about the ways that we haven't been faithful. We often compare ourselves to others and we elevate faithful people as being more loyal or being more content than we are. We think to ourselves, if I was a more faithful person, then I would be able to sleep better. If I was able to sleep better, if I was less anxious because I had some faith to rely on, work would be better, my relationships would be better. I'd be happier. I'd have more peace in my life if I was able to leave things up to God in the way that I wish I could. If I had more faith, I would simply have a much better life, we often think. And you can see something interesting, I think, when you begin to unwrap the onion of our desire for more faith. On the outside, it can, it can appear like we're trying to trust in someone other than ourselves. But in the end, we often make faith all about ourselves and what we can get out of it or how we can and should cultivate faith 
in our lives through things that we do, disciplines that we keep. And Jesus knows this about us, of course. And so he calls his disciples out for not having any idea of what faith actually really is. He said that if you had even a tiny little mustard seed of faith, faith that truly had nothing to do with you or your reliance on yourself or your own self-interest, well then anything in the world would be possible. And then he tells them a parable about servants not being rewarded for doing what was already expected of them. Jesus is showing the disciples and he's showing all of us that there isn't anything that we can do or even be given that will improve or prepare us for a closer relationship with Him. But that's okay because if you think about it, if you put yourself in this passage, in this story, in the case of the disciples, they couldn't do anything to get closer to God because Jesus was literally standing right in front of them. And it turns out that the same thing is the case for us. I'm certainly not saying that there is anything this morning wrong with faith or desiring or longing for an increase of faith or the gift of a tiny mustard seed of faith. What I'm saying is that there is a deeply ingrained human propensity to make faith about us, about what we do or about what we have or about what we bring to the table. We have a gift of making faith a work. We make it about us. In fact, we have a great gift for making just about anything all about us. For taking ourselves too seriously and giving ourselves way too much credit. For example, about seven or eight years ago, I gave my first real sermon. It was at the wedding of two of my oldest friends. I grew up with both of them, and we had a lot of the same friends. And so while this was an incredible honor for them uh, to have asked me to preach at their wedding, I was also incredibly nervous, thinking about dozens and dozens of high school friends packing themselves in to the chapel out at Grace Keswick to listen to me stand up in a pulpit and preach for the first time. And I wasn't the only one who was nervous that day. Courtney was sitting in the pew next to an old friend of mine named Stan, and she almost crushed his hand. She was squeezing it so tightly as she anxiously watched me anxiously, timidly walk up into that pulpit with sweat just pouring down my face. But thankfully, it wasn't a disaster in the end, and I pushed past the nerves and I got through it. Afterwards, I caught my breath, I went to the reception, I grabbed a bourbon or two, and people started coming up to me, and they kept coming up to me and telling me how they thought that I did a great job. A few old friends even come up to, came up to me and they said, Josh, we didn't even know that you could read, much less <laughs> write a sermon and stand up in front of people and give it. That was shocking. So, needless to say, this all felt really good. And so, towards the end of the night, I put my arm around Courtney, and without a single drop of sarcasm, 
in all sincerity, I looked at her and I said, you know, I guess I'm going to have to get used to talking to people like this, receiving so many compliments about how great a preacher and a speaker I am. You know, I think this is just going to become a part of my life now, and I'm going to have to learn how to deal with it. And Courtney turned and she looked at me with a certain look on her face and she said, did you actually just say that out loud? Did you hear what you just said? You are insane. We take ourselves way too seriously. We give ourselves way, way too much credit. And we think that in through doing so, that we earn things. But faith isn't something that's earned. Faith isn't a reward. It's not a gift given in response to what we've done or earned or manifested on our own in any way. It's not a reward for being disciplined. It's not a reward for going to church or reading the right book. Rather, faith is the experience or recognition that you've already received your reward. You've already been given the greatest gift of all because you've already been forgiven and loved by the one true merciful God who gave himself to you and to us all upon the cross. We will never be without that gift, that sacrifice, that death and resurrection. We don't need to build up ourselves or our faith in order to feel whole or to feel worthy or to feel lovable. The gift of God's love has already been delivered. It's with us and it's for us, and that's not an insignificant thing in this life, which is hard. I'm reading a great book right now about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was an English poet most well-known for his poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. Coleridge was himself a terribly depressed man for much of his life. He was addicted to opium, and he was simply lost. So in August of 1803, Coleridge left his family in Northern Ireland to go on a short tour of Scotland with his friend William Wordsworth, hoping that the scenery and activity would help to snap him out of the darkness that he felt like he was simply drowning in. But in the middle of that trip, Coleridge sort of snapped himself, and he went off walking by himself, away from the group. Wordsworth thought that he certainly had turned south and gone back home, but in fact, Coleridge had, went, had gone north, and he kept walking all by himself, all the way up into Scotland, all the way back home. He walked over 260 miles all by himself. And while he was walking, he actually wrote this haunting poem called The Pains of Sleep. It's one of my favorite poems of his. It's about someone who's lost and consumed with all of the fury that life can be, but then turns, uh, tries to turn, at least, to prayer. I had a professor in seminary who told us never to read a poem in a sermon, but we already covered how great a preacher I am, so I'm sure I'm making <laughs> the right decision right now. So, here it goes. Ere on my bed my limbs I lay, it hath not been my use to pray. 
with moving lips or bended knees, but silently, by slow degrees, my spirit I to love compose, in humble trust mine eyelids close. But yesternight I prayed aloud in anguish and in agony, upstarting from the fiendish crowd of shapes and thoughts that tortured me, a lurid light, a trampling throng, sense of intolerable wrong, in whom I scorned those only strong, thirst of revenge, the powerless will, still baffled and yet burning still. In the midst of this experience of the chaos and depression that Coleridge was experiencing in his own life, he concludes this poem with this line, which is a gesture towards after all that he's experienced, even in trying to increase his faith through prayer, he's still unable to attain or earn or will on his own the one thing that he needs. And this is the last line of that poem. To be loved is all I need. And whom I love, I love indeed. Coleridge, like many of us, have or will reach the end of his rope. He felt the pain and the isolation of broken relationships and anxiety. He felt the frustrations of failed attempts to fix himself and others around him. He prayed, he cried out, but the more he screamed with effort and voice, the one thing he would return to was, in the end, the one thing that he needed. To be loved is all I need. We can't be loved by fixing ourselves. We can't make ourselves more worthy by being more faithful or praying more earnestly. Jesus, after all, came to heal the sick. Not those who have made themselves better. Not those who have become more lovable. He's come for those who feel unlovable. He's come for people like you and me. For people who need something powerful. Who need something more powerful than they can attain on their own. Something that actually in the end doesn't have anything to do with them at all. The disciples asked Jesus for more faith. And Jesus told them, no, what you need is death and resurrection. Mercy and forgiveness. What you need, you can't do yourself. They asked for more faith, but Jesus said to them and He says to us today, what you need is Me. And I am right here. Body broken, bloodshed, right here, right now. Jesus says, I am here, and I am what you need. Amen.